I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to my 58th sermon on the biblical design of gender, in which my point is that our dominion will not end on earth if we conform ourselves to the plan of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we don't learn to love here, we can forget about dominion over there. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. Good morning this morning. It's about time for us to uh, start on this uh, ninth day of the month of uh, January, the second Sunday in the new year. And it is good that uh, we are all here for that. Our lesson for this morning is the 58th part in our sermon series on the biblical design of gender. And the text is in the ninth verse of the third chapter of the book of 1 Kings. And in it, the Bible says this, therefore, Give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? God bless the reading of his word, and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So Lord, we ask you today that you would give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Thank you very much for coming to hear our lesson for this morning. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ, in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. And our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. Now, in our last lesson, we completed our review of the life of King David as we focused on the result of his sin with Bathsheba. David's son Amnon was killed as a direct result of David's, David's adulterous example, and his sons Absalom and Adonijah were killed as a result of their lack of respect for their father because of his sin. And God prophesied this punishment for David, saying in 2 Samuel 12:10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And God was true to his word. Before David sinned with Bathsheba, David's wars were with the nations surrounding Israel and Judah, 
But after Bathsheba, David fought civil wars for the rest of his life. But David did not raise his son Solomon to be a warrior king. His interactions with the kingdoms surrounding Israel and the kingdoms far away were diplomatic rather than military. First Kings chapter three, verse one records, now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. Now, during the days of King Solomon, the heathen nations surrounding Israel had an interesting way of making treaties. And as we have seen from our earlier lessons, heathen kings did not deny themselves many pleasures, especially when it came to women. Each heathen king had a harem, meaning a large number of wives, and as a result of having many wives, also had many daughters. Obviously, the kings also had many sons, but the sons are not relevant to this discussion. But when two kings decided to make a treaty with one another, they consummated the treaty by marrying one another's daughters. Thus, the kings became in-law and familial status ensured that they would not attack one another. But God frowned on this practice of treaty by marriage because the practice violated God's biblical design of gender. God designed wives to be the focus of their husband's attention, not bargaining chips. In his law, God instructed the Israelites in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 17, when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving it, giving you, and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. But the king shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall the king multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply gold and silver and gold for himself. Thus it was not God's intention that the Israelite king use his office to acquire a harem. So marrying the Pharaoh's daughter to forge a political alliance was the beginning of Solomon's disobedience to God. But Solomon knew that a diplomat most needed information and insight. So Solomon got God's attention by making a great sacrifice to him at Gibeon. And as a result, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5 through 9 records at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, before, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his, on his throne as it is this day. But now, O Lord my God, 
you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Now Solomon knew how to pray. First Peter chapter 5, verse 5 through 7 teaches us, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And not only did Solomon know that God should be approached with humility and submissiveness, Solomon also knew that he should not pray primarily to benefit himself, but rather to benefit the nation of Israel. James chapter 4 verse 3 teaches us, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So when people imply through their preaching that God is a cosmic messenger boy put here to serve our desires, James teaches us that they have an error in their doctrine. Peter and James tell us that if you want to get a prayer through to God, be humble, be submissive, focus on doing the will of God, and tell God, as Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we ask God for that which we want, we need to couch our request in our ultimate desire to benefit the kingdom of God. And we ought to recognize that that which we want for our own self-aggrandizement is not necessarily in the will of God. Isaiah 55, 8, 9 tells us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. But God responded to the submission and humility of Solomon's request for the benefit of the nation of Israel. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 10 through 12, the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked, long life for yourself, nor ask riches for yourself, nor ask the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And God gave Solomon the reward that comes to one that puts the kingdom of God first. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, but seek first 
the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So God tells Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, and I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways <clears throat> to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. <clears throat> And we know that David was not perfect in his walk with the Lord, but David was humble. David was submissive, and with a few exceptions, David did the will of God. So God promised Solomon wisdom and admonished Solomon to walk in his father David's footsteps of devotion to him. And Solomon made a good start. First Kings chapter 3, verse 16 through 18 records, now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, O oh my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened, the third day after I had given birth, that this woman also gave birth, and we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. Now, both of the women involved are harlots. A harlot is figuratively one who worship an idol. Actually, a harlot is a woman guilty of being involved in illicit sexual relationships outside of marriage. Now, idol gods of the time were fertility gods, the worship of which could supposedly make the land fertile to yield abundant crops. But idol gods had no power. They were designed by men to receive the offerings that should have been given to the true God. And in order to convince worshipers to give offerings to the idol, the men that designed idolatry taught that giving an offering in order to have sexual intercourse with a temple prostitute that represented the idol would make the land fertile. So even if the land did not become fertile, at least the idol worshipers got their money's worth up front and would bring offerings to worship the idol. Numbers 25, chapter 25, verse 1 through 3 describes, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. The women of Moab invited the Israelite people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the Israelites ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to the Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. The women of Moab in this case, but women in every heathen nation were recruited into being prostitutes for the idol gods. Part of the money that the women obtained maintained the idol's temple, and the women lived off of the rest. The priest of the idol god that convinced the women to prostitute themselves were the pimps, and the women who did so were the prostitutes. But God considers marital sex a form of worship. God ordained sex in Genesis 2.24 when he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And since God is the one that joins us together in marriage, 
the covenant of marriage is sacred and marital sex is a form of worship. And in Israel, sex outside of marriage came to be associated with the worship of idol gods. Because the sex was associated <coughs> with idolatry, and since the commandment of God teaches that adultery and fornication are sins. In Israel, a woman that participated in adultery or fornication was considered to have prostituted herself, was associated with idolatry and known as a harlot, or in modern terms, a whore, whether she was paid and whether she gave her money to the idol's pimp or not. And God's position has not changed. He tells us in Hebrews 13 and 4, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Girls and women that participate in sex outside of wedlock are whores, whether they are paid or not. And women that shack up with men outside of wedlock are whores as well, whether they receive their compensation in cash or in commodities. And many in our society tell girls and women that participate in sex outside of wedlock that they are, quote, liberated, but those that do this type of encouraging are acting as pimps for an idol. And the women that fall for their encouragement become whores just as they did in Bible days. And temple prostitutes would be out of business in our society because so many women are whoring for free, and it is difficult for a prostitute that charges for her services to compete with that price point. But the first harlot continues her account in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 19 through 22. She says, and this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom, and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I arose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other, the second woman, said, No, but the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, No, but the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. Now, from the account, it is obvious that both of the women want the child, but it is also obvious that one of the two women must be lying. They can't both be the child's mother. One woman killed her child by not paying the proper attention to him, and then she intentionally stole the other woman's child. And God gave Solomon a wise and understanding heart to understand the old adage, misery loves company. The remorse of the woman that killed her child for her accidental deed was painful. She rationalized that her pain wasn't her fault since her pain was caused by an accident. So she decided that she was entitled to relieve her pain by transferring it to someone else. In other words, misery loves company. Now this is a deadly mindset when it comes to relationships. 
I recently read that the divorce rate in our country is down because divorces are too expensive to afford during our current economic downturn. But I have also read that many married couples, rather than turning to each other in this time of economic turmoil, have rather turned on each other, even as the woman in the episode turned on her roommate. And while it may give one spouse some short-lived satisfaction to berate the other spouse because of a situation that is beyond the control of both of them, in the final analysis, it leads to the dissolution of the marriage and more misery for the one that chose to inflict misery on their mate. So, when bad things happen, spouses need to turn to one another for comfort rather than turning on one another to indulge their rage. And that is especially true in the case of any negative situation which, like the economy, is not the fault of your spouse. Marital vows call for us to love, honor, and cherish each other, not beat each other up physically or emotionally. And God commands us in Ecclesiastes 9 and 9, live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. So we are commanded to live joyfully in our marriages. You see, children often are hard-headed, so parents have to focus on getting through the disobedient spirit of a child to correct him or her into righteousness. But the only relationship to which some people can relate is that of either being a parent and correcting or being a child and being corrected. But marriage is the place in which two adults relate to one another as husband and wife, not parent and child. When we enter, enter a marital relationship, adulthood requires us to change our perspective. Rather than either correcting or being corrected, we have to learn to love. God's perspective is given in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, which says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. But being angry, generally speaking, causes us to sin. Psalm 37, 8, 9 tells us, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. And when I decide to become angry and punish my spouse, I become an evildoer because God tells me to live joyfully. And punishing my spouse does not benefit me. There is no point in me punishing my wife for some situation over which she has no control and can do nothing about. I would be better served by seeking comfort from her rather than beating her up emotionally. And the same thing is true in reverse. Anger is the wrong reaction. God is in control. 
if we wait patiently and lovingly for God to bring our vindication to pass, rather than angrily trying to gain some type of revenge and have our own way, we will be doing that which the Lord says to do. Psalm 37 and 7 tells us, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. But the whore that accidentally killed her child was miserable and did not have the emotional intelligence to seek solace to diffuse her misery, but rather indulged her wicked side and schemed to spread her misery to her housemate. But since she was such a miserable person, Solomon decided to use her misery to ferret out her identity. 1 Kings 3, 24-26 says, Then the king said, Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to one, and half to the other. Then the first woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son, and she said, O oh my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other, the second woman, said, Let him be neither mine nor yours, but divided. And now we see the depths of the second woman's depravity. The second woman is willing to kill the first woman's innocent child just because she is miserable about rolling over and killing her own. The second woman has no compassion for the first woman or for the child. And although she will receive no benefit from killing the child, the second woman's only thought is to spread her misery as far and wide as she can. And as I said earlier, misery loves company. And we have this mindset in our society today. We see this mindset in many women that have killed their own children. Many women that have killed their own children want to see your child dead. And in our country, we have thousands, if not millions, of such women. They march, they organize, and they do all that they can to exercise political power in order to convince women that it is acceptable for them to kill their own children. Even as the idle pimps recruited women to be prostitutes, these women encourage unmarried girls and women to be sexually active, although they know that they are either too young to marry or not in the position to care for a child without a spouse. They tell these girls and women that contraceptives will allow them to have sex, quote, safely, avoiding the consequences of sex, which is a lie from the pit of hell. Every contraceptive known to mankind, even if used perfectly, has a failure rate. And contraceptives are seldom used perfectly by children and women having sex surreptitiously or adults having sex irresponsibly. So to teach that contraceptives makes women safe from the consequences of sex 
is a hugely irresponsible thing for any person in authority to do. But unmarried girls and women that are sexually active will conceive with no way to care for the child that they have caused to come into the world. Then these women pounce on them. Did you know that in order for a girl under 18 years of age to get her ears pierced, she must get her parents' consent to have the procedure? But she can obtain, a, obtain an abortion without her parents' knowledge, much, net, much less their permission. Yes, I mean right now in this country, a girl can't get an abortion without money. But if someone will pay, she can get one without parental permission. But why would anyone encourage a girl or an unmarried young woman to intentionally kill her child by having an abortion? Why is an abortion an acceptable way to avoid the consequences of harlotry? Well, to women that encourage, the killing of children is a sacrament. And why? Because these women have killed their own children, just as the woman in the episode wanted her housemaid's child killed because she killed her own child. And just as such depravity existed in Solomon's day, it still exists in our day. But God is watching and tells us in Psalm 37, 12 through 15, the wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy to slay those, those who are of upright conduct their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. And so God gave Solomon the wisdom that he needed to reveal that which was in the hearts of those with whom he came into contact. Now Solomon was never going to kill the child, but he knew that to offer to do so would bring compassion for the child from the actual mother and either indifference to or enthusiasm about the death of the child from the woman whose own child was dead. Solomon recognized that he did not have to interrogate the women to find out which of them was in which position because actions speak louder than words. And although many people may express love verbally, their actions tell the true tale. In our society, Abortion advocates say that they want abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. But when the choice is between abortion and adoption, abortion advocates generally do not support adoption. And the first woman supported adoption as she willingly gave her child to be adopted by the second woman that claimed she wanted it. But the second woman was in favor of abortion and wanted the child killed. And Solomon knew the meaning of someone that chooses death over life or abortion over adoption. So Solomon responded appropriately in 1 Kings 3.27. So the king answered, give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And the wisdom that Solomon received from the Lord enabled Solomon to devise the test that would reveal the hearts of the two women. And as 1 Kings 3.28 tells us, all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they feared the king 
for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, verse 10 and 11, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And we have the daily decision. Will we choose love or will we choose anger? Will we live joyfully or will we live vengefully? Will we choose the abundant life or will we choose death? And if there is anyone that has a reason to be angry with us, it is God. God gave us life and a world upon which to live it. And we have all at one time or another spit in God's face. Our sin against God is a universal condition and we all deserve the same fate as Revelation 21.8 records, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And if you are not guilty of any of these sins, there is another list upon which you certainly fall. So the lake of fire and brimstone is that which we deserve. But rather than being angry with us, God tells us in John three sixteen and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And God, the Holy Spirit tells us through the teachings of the apostle John in 1 John 4, 7 through 11, beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent us his son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation for our sins. And beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So it is time out for anger. It is time out for wrath. It is time out for seeking to spread our misery to someone else. And it is time out for claiming to be loving in the world and among one another, but being unable to be loving in the closest relationship that we have. Mothers cannot kill their children and then claim to be loving. Actions speak louder than words. Spouses cannot hate and divorce one another and then claim to be loving. Actions speak louder than words. So it is time for us to live joyfully 
and to remember God's gracious actions toward us and his goodness to us, to us in that God gave us the free gift of his only begotten son, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died physically on the cross of Calvary, that after we go through the trials and tribulations of life to learn the lessons which the Lord has for us, our sins will be forgiven. And the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead physically on that first Easter Sunday morning to let us know through the testimony of the disciples and the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we are preparing for another life in heaven after this life on earth, and that our dominion will not end on planet earth, but will carry on to our eternal life if we conform ourselves to the plan of the Lord Jesus Christ and use our earthly experiences to learn the principles that the Lord teaches us in his word. But if we don't learn to love here, we can forget about dominion over there. So let us learn the plan of the Lord Jesus Christ and love one another. And that is why we are here. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our mind so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. And the we in those statement means that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. So as we start another new year, let us resolve to make our experiences here in church and in the world in experiences in which we would learn the plan of God that we may grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And let us be grateful to God for his indescribable gift. Psalm 103 through 5 tells us, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Christian God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson, for this example, for this wisdom. And we ask you, Lord, that you would imbue us with the same kind of wisdom but not that we might be able to judge the hearts of others, but that we might be able to judge our own hearts, that we might be able to understand that which you are teaching in your word, and that we might change our thinking, fall out with the wicked ways of this world, not be converted or convinced by that which they do on the outside, 
but conform our lives to that which you command us to do in your word. Give us a mind, Lord, that we might be able to understand your word and that we might be able to, to get away from those things that we have learned that are outside of your word and conform our lives to your wisdom and to your knowledge and to that which the word teaches us. And we thank you for it. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you, Lord, that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus we pray. Amen and thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.